Welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. Together, we're going to explore lessons to help us live well. Let the learning begin. Hello, and welcome to episode 64 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I'm Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach, and I support busy, big-hearted educators to prioritize their well-being and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I believe that you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships, and happiness to be a great teacher. It is possible to teach well and be well. Energy by Design is my game-changing well-being program for educators that are ready to reclaim their spark. Over four weeks, you have access to a space to connect, share, laugh, and learn with others that get it and are inspired to take purposeful action to feel, function, and relate better. Join the waitlist to be the first to know when enrollments open for the next round. When it comes to staff wellbeing, whose responsibility is it? The school? Leadership? The system? Us? As educators, we can often fall into the trap of thinking that it's up to the school or the system to change before we make change. And this is a very unhelpful and disempowering place to be. If we wait for the system to change, we'll be waiting our whole careers. It's like me saying that I will take better care of myself once the boys move out of home. And our boys are currently five and three years old. So that's going to be a long wait before things really settle down and I have much more time available. And yes, there is no doubt that the education system needs to make some fundamental changes to the way it engages, supports and retains staff. And we also have to take personal responsibility for the way that we function within the current system. As educators, we have a natural talent of planning, organizing, and connecting with others, and we can use that to our advantage. We have the power and the skill to create meaningful change. I remember years ago now, I had been at a school for about two years. It was a large prep to 12 school with over 600 staff, and I felt really connected to my department, but quite disconnected to the school. And I would often attend meetings and see people that I had never seen before. And one day I casually mentioned this to a colleague and they smiled and said, Meg, it took me seven years to feel like I really belong. (laughs) And I almost choked. I thought, seven years? I don't have seven years. With my personality, seven years was not going to cut it. I wanted to find a way to get to know my colleagues, to shortcut the process of belonging. So I made a meeting with one of the members of the executive team and I proposed the idea of establishing a staff social committee with the sole purpose of creating casual spaces for staff to connect, share, laugh and be together. And they said, go for it. And I knew that I needed support with this. So I put a call of action out in the staff newsletter to see if anyone was interested. And before you knew it, we had a group and we were up and running with no budget and a bucket load of hope. We named our group SALSA, which stands for Staff Association Leisure and Social Activities, and it was open for all staff. As a committee, we hosted movie nights, dinners, barefoot bowls, morning teas. We had staff guess who's, puzzles, you name it, we tried it. And over time, we found that staff were feeling much more connected. There was a buzz in the staff room. 
and it highlights what is possible when a group of committed educators work together. So when it comes to staff wellbeing, what is the impact of staff wellbeing on student outcomes? What is it that compromises staff wellbeing? How can staff feel and function well in such a complex and demanding system? These are just some of the questions today's guest, Dr. Donna Cross, has spent years conducting extensive research into. Donna is a behavioural scientist, an Emirates professor at the University of Western Australia, and senior research fellow at the Telethon Kids Institute, and is a passionate advocate for the importance of supporting the wellbeing of both students and staff. Donna has received over $84 million in research funding, which has contributed to significant health and education policy and practice changes in schools and the wider community. Her research addresses children's and adolescents' social and emotional wellbeing, mental health promotion, bullying prevention, and positive and safe online behaviour. For her leadership in improving children and adolescent mental health and wellbeing, Donna received an OAM was the 2012 WA Australian of the Year and in 2022 an inductee into the WA Women's Hall of Fame and she is a fellow of the Australian Academy of Health and Medical Science. And as well as all of this, Donna is a big-hearted human that generously shares her knowledge and expertise with such warmth and grace. In this episode, we discuss how teacher wellbeing affects educational outcomes the importance of building positive relationships, how school culture and climate can impact staff wellbeing, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Donna Cross. Donna, welcome to the School of Wellbeing podcast. Thanks, Meg. Lovely to be here. Today, we're going to be talking about how school wellbeing influences student wellbeing Why do you think this is such an important topic for us to explore? When we consider wellbeing, it it is really everybody in the school community who is affected by each other. I mean, it's an amazing ecosystem and it responds to everyone who's engaged, not just students and teachers, but also parents, families and, and the wider community. Like a family, if somebody's unwell in the family, it affects other members so when we're considering you know, the well-being of young people and what an important priority that is, we have to be mindful of the, the whole school system uh, as part of that. That is such a beautiful analogy to think about. We can all think of a time when there has been someone unwell in our family and it has that impact. It has that ripple effect. Sometimes you have to do a little bit more. Sometimes you need to gather. And it's important to notice that that's what happens every day in school life, that we are a system that is in relationship constantly. And, uh, you know, in the same way as you were suggesting there that, you know, when someone is unwell, that that affects others. But similarly, if others are well, you know, there is such a positive ripple that comes from that as well. So it's really being mindful of, you know, what is our status and being aware of how we're functioning and, uh, and how we're interacting with others that awareness, of course, tells us and guides us in the sorts of actions that we should be taking to lift ourselves, lift others, identify when we're feeling a bit low and obviously taking action when we see that in others as well. So when we're talking about school leaders and staff in particular, what is their current state of wellbeing? 
You know, it's such a great question, Meg, and particularly, you know, well, I, de- I dare not say post-COVID, but, you know, later on in the, the COVID dilemma that we're all facing, I think already as a profession, teachers are working so hard. You know, they're frontline. They must turn up every day, despite the fact that we were able to deliver many of the services that school provides online. We know that there were, um, you know, significant deficiencies, not on the teacher's part, but just missing that uh, day-to-day contact. And we know that the interactions that we have with everyone around us and ideally face-to-face, that that could make uh, an extraordinary difference. So we think there was a lot that went on during COVID, but even prior to COVID, teachers are being asked to do a lot. You know, there is a great deal of emotional IQ uh, in teaching. It's not just being a content expert who can deliver and provide interesting, exciting lessons for students. We know that when students like their teachers, they perform so much better, even if that teacher isn't a stronger teacher than another teacher, the relationships are critical. The teacher's well-being is being drawn down on. You know, you think of the credit that teachers bring to school and provide uh, this environment to nurture and grow and develop students. You know, it does take a toll on their well-being, and I don't think that's as recognised as it should be. I know myself when I first stepped into the classroom, I was so confident because I had my lesson plans, I had my content, but it was the emotional side of school life, the humanness that really weighed me down, and that's what I used to worry about each night. Uh, You're touching on such an important issue, Meg. Um, sort of that emotional fatigue. Now, we talk about it in, um, you know, those in the medical profession, nursing and so on, you know, that caring, the caring profession. And sometimes teaching isn't perhaps by the wider community considered a, a caring profession, but clearly, you know, when you think about it, of course it is. Teachers provide a sanctuary for children to come to school, and that was never more evident than during COVID when we realised, you know, how important school was to identify children who were having difficulties and that those children had a trusted adult that they could go to and talk about these issues with. So, you know, teaching, you know, is exhausting, both in uh, the cognitive delivery of content to students and also that beautiful nurturing model that sits alongside it. And the exhaustion doesn't finish after those first few years because as you move on in your career, you're taking on leadership roles and also the student challenges are getting a little bit bigger, a little bit more complex, more parent engagement. So it doesn't leave us. Yes, it certainly doesn't. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I, looking at some of the data, I always think it's so interesting, Meg, that you know, when you think about who, who are we caring for and, you know, as you get more senior, as you're suggesting, you know, who are the young people who are perhaps drawing a, an extra amount of energy from staff. And our data show that about 50% of young people will experience a mental health problem before the age of 14. So, you know, this is their first episode or first, uh, first symptom of all the people who will have uh, a lifetime mental health problem. Half of them will have it before the age of 14. So you, you think, you know, teachers need to respond to that. And the more senior you are, you know, the more responsibility you have to help and support that child, of course, help the family and help connect that child to support in the wider community. And largely, it's, it's kind of a bit like a funnel, I guess. The more senior you get, you know, the, the greater your responsibility to help particularly those children who have great needs and not just those with mental health issues. Obviously, there are lots of uh, chronic conditions that young people experience 
but it's the leaders who carry the burden and who are primarily responsible alongside families, of course, to um, help that child do the very best they can. And it's interesting to note the school leaders that I work with, it's not just the emotional labour at school, also their life emotional labour as parents or caregivers is also increasing. In the last 12 months, I think eight out of 10 people that have come up to me at the end of a presentation have been women who have got either teenagers or young adults in their home and looking after elderly parents as well. So they've got the leadership in the school, but then their own caring demands are going through the roof as well. That's such a critical issue because you look at just society generally and uh, you know the impact. We've had some extraordinary circumstances in our communities with fires and floods and pandemics and you know all of this is affecting everybody's day-to-day lives and the relationships and the care that they have for their family. Our data show that about 75% of staff are reporting, school staff are reporting elevated levels of stress. You know, obviously it's related to their workload, to their job intensification, to managing just the administration in their education environment. Of course, they've got safety issues for kids, but all of that is on top of their home life. And I always have a laugh when people say, oh, you know, teachers have a nine to five, a nine to three a.m job, a 3pm job, and you think, goodness gracious, the amount of preparation, the the work that's done outside of hours to to teach all day, where often they don't get time to go to the toilet, they don't get time to have their lunch, I mean, the intensity is extraordinary, and that takes a tremendous toll on their well-being. In some of our data, for example, sorry, I'm talking too much, you make it, um, over a term, we often find that teachers immune systems are just getting belted over the 10-week term. Many of them are very unwell by week 9 and 10. They get a two-week break to do their preparation and get ready for next term. They get a little bit better, ready to go back to another intensive 10-week period of just hammering their overall well-being. And I don't think there aren't many jobs, when you think about it, that have that level of intensity through blocks of time with so much responsibility, not just for them doing their own work, but caring for such huge numbers of students. It is so true. We've almost set up this system where it is boom and bust by the nature of having four distinct terms. Yes. And and interestingly, when we think about school structures, they, uh, schools haven't changed really (laughs) since the 18th century in terms of structures. You know, we went the age that we transitioned children and the size of the schools. You know, it's hard to overhaul a system that's been running for so long, but there are some really interesting structural changes that uh, can make an enormous difference for how schools operate and how teachers' wellbeing can be cared for while at the same time they're delivering the quality uh, outcomes that, uh, that they're so responsible for. So what is the consequence of not focusing on staff wellbeing in school communities? If teachers aren't well, then students aren't well. Uh, and I don't mean that, you know, a teacher has a cold and they bring it into the classroom and all the children catch a cold. We all know how we function. When we're feeling on top of the world, we bring more joy. We think faster. We're more creative. Our memory is better. We know that well-being has a huge influence on our cognitive processes. So just feeling well helps me to be a better teacher. It helps me to interact more positively with students and build relationships with students versus 
perhaps being exhausted and just being able to do the, the bare minimum. So it affects the quality of my teaching. It obviously affects the quality of the relationships that I have with students. And as I've already mentioned, you know, those relationships are critical to a child's learning. It affects the relationships I have with other teachers. So obviously, you know, that sharing the camaraderie that is um, critical to be successful in a school environment. And of course, it, it affects my ability to turn up each day. You know, if, I'm, if children are getting erratic exposure to teachers, I mean, relief teachers do a marvellous job, but it's not the same as having your regular teacher there with the relationships that you've built. You know, that's disrupting uh, children's learning as well. And probably the big one is you know, dealing with behaviour problems in the classroom. You know, children will behave badly and you know, at different ages there are lots of you know, things happening with that amygdala, pushing through a lot of emotional responses. And teachers have to be calm and have to work hard to support children who are behaving badly. And you're better able to do that uh, as well. And when children are behaving well, they're learning well and it's not affecting the learning of other children. So on every level, teacher wellbeing is critical for educational outcomes, social outcomes, emotional outcomes, and of course, even the physical health of children. As you're talking, I can just picture this reciprocal relationship between teacher and student and how we're constantly in a dance when we're feeling well, we're more patient. So then they're more likely to get the task done and then they feel better about themselves and then we feel better that they've got the task done. But then also the reverse is true. When we're feeling tired and edgy, then we're a little bit short and then they get short with us. And it's this vicious cycle. It's almost can spiral up and spiral down very, very quickly. I love your analogy of a dance. Um, it's just just perfect. And, and I think, you know, that dance is also about job satisfaction. You know, you ask teachers, when your job is so tough, why do you do it? And so many teachers, and I've asked this question particularly in our research related to principals and school leaders, you know, it's a really tough job. Why do you stay in it when there is so much stress and you are feeling so exhausted? And at extremely high levels, their answer is always is because I love working with young people. They're in the job for the passion, that, you know, their love of interacting with children and the, that job satisfaction is so high. And it's higher than other professions. When we've compared that kind of commitment and, uh, and why do teachers have such high levels of job satisfaction, it is almost inevitably those who have chosen the profession because they love being with young people and how inspiring it is to spend time with young people. And that, that job satisfaction is really important because when you think about how do you have your best well-being, no matter what risk factors you have, so no matter what stress levels you have, if you are balancing those stress levels with risk factors, with protective factors, you know, good relationships and you know, feelings of gratitude and hope and, uh, and love, you can handle really high levels of stress because really able to to get that balance right you know the Chinese had it so well explained with yin and yang and in a, in the same way you know that's what we largely have in our teaching profession not saying that we shouldn't be doing much to help teachers to support their well-being but they're doing a, a fine job themselves because of their love and passion for the work that they're doing and the impact that they can have. I'm just thinking about a school that I once worked at it was a very challenging school very challenging behaviours, lots of trauma-informed practice happening. But in that staff room, it was tight. It was strong. Everyone would be there at lunchtime. Someone would be doing the quiz. People were together and gathering. So that dance was quite strong. Like we have to work hard to get through each lesson to create this environment. But then we have this 
safety and nurturing in the staff room. And I haven't seen that everywhere I've gone. Not every school that I've been to has been like that. I've worked at schools where you would never see anyone in the staff room at lunchtime. I put an initiative to make people start coming, morning teas, I had puzzles, I had all kinds of things trying to get people into staff rooms. So it's interesting to notice in different environments, it is very different in the way that staff interact. It sure is. And we think, and certainly in our research, uh, that this comes down to school culture, you know, the climate that's established within the school. And a lot of that is that terrible saying, you know, fish rots from the head. But, you know, I wish there was a positive version of that because, you know, when the principal and the leadership team are functioning well, you know, the the impact on the school, you know, statistically, 40% of the variance that we see between schools is who the school leaders are. So when uh, the leaders are creating a nurturing environment, as, as you suggest, you know, that staff room, that is a sanctuary for staff and where uh, staff are deeply respected for the work that they do and uh, and that there is that opportunity to build social capital between staff where each are, are supporting one another. It's often the case, you know, in teaching. I know when I started teaching, you know, first year out, you went into your classroom, you closed the door and you're on your own to a large extent. But over the years, obviously the importance of mentoring, um, mentoring and coaching, good inductions, helping staff you know, to connect with other staff, communities of practice where they're spending time with like-minded, possibly discipline-focused uh, groups, you know, maths teachers coming together and uh, and looking for innovation. But amongst all of that, you know, as you're suggesting, that dance is, is about leaning on each other and um, relying on those levels of support to really boost their well-being and, uh, and their love and contribution in the school environment. Some of my fondest memories have been in staff rooms with different teachers who are all different stages of their journey. I particularly remember early career teacher. I was very A-type. I wanted to get everything perfect. I would spray and wipe my desk at the end of the day. I'd have to have a clear in-tray. And I shared the office with an incredible teacher. His name was Chris. And he used to look at me and laugh every now and then. <laughs> I'm not quite sure what's funny. And then one day he said, Meg, are you winning the battle against the forces of disorder? <laughs> I'm like, no, Chris, I'm not. <laughs> and, and, you know, it's interesting you say that because I, I think that, you know, we learn so much from our colleagues and, uh, and observe their ways. My mentor, my very first boss teaching, uh, an amazing man, I'll just, his name is John, and, you know, he, his way of dealing with stress each day, which I learned as a 21-year-old, all of the tough things he had to do during the day, he did first up. He did between 9 and 10 o'clock in the morning. He had to make a tough phone call. He did it first. And he used to explain to me as he would do it that, Donna, if I didn't do it now, it, it would just bother me all day. So I might as well just get it over with and, you know, get rid of the pain and then enjoy the rest of my day. And I think if we're not collegial, if we're not spending time together, we're not coming to the staff room and sharing ideas, you know, it really limits our own well-being and health outcomes, but also it improves our, our professionalism and the sorts of things that we can be doing to support kids. Because it's interesting to circle back to the idea of climate because if the climate is all about pushing, pushing more, more, no time to stop, no time to eat, we're missing those opportunities for connection, for presence, to get to know our colleagues other than just transactional conversations about who's on duty, who's doing what. We're missing the fact that they may have a partner that's unwell 
or someone in their family is going through something or they've got something exciting, a child starting school. We miss those opportunities for connection when we have our busy blinkers on. Indeed. And those opportunities for connection are so critical for our well-being. We live longer, and know this amazing longitudinal evidence, we live longer when we have quality and multiple relationships that are reciprocated, where you have friends who care for you as much as you care for them. Now, the data around loneliness and the impact of loneliness, there was a paper that was released late last year that talked about being lonely. So not, it's, it's obviously lovely to be alone when you want to be alone, but people who want to be with someone but, but aren't, that loneliness equivalent was discussed in this paper as being related to smoking 15 cigarettes a day in terms of the harm that it does to our bodies. So you might say, well, you know, how does loneliness affect your well-being? Well, it obviously limits the efficiency of your immune system in the same way that when you're depressed or you have other mental health difficulties. So it's really critical that we help people to connect and that we Grease the works, in effect. You know, we, as, as you suggested so beautifully, Meg, you know, food in the staff room. You know, no, no one brings, nothing brings you to the staff room faster than food. And obviously, you know, fun, uh, you know, the, sort, the things that are good for our well-being and, uh, and good for our engagement with others. Bringing that element of fun back to school environments because I'm noticing more and more just how serious Everything has become, everything's very serious, it's very strategic, which is wonderful. We need to have strategy, we need to have evidence-based approaches, and we need to remember that we're humans and it's a joyful experience. And our young people are watching us. They're watching what it is like to be an adult. Indeed, and sometimes, you know, teachers are the best role models in a, a child's life and possibly one of the few trusted adults they have for those children who come from difficult homes. So critical role models. So not only you think about any other job, you go to the go to your office, you do what's required. Obviously there's collegiality and sharing and so on, but you don't have a thousand eyes watching you and learning from you. And a thousand young people in a typical high school uh, who are wanting to uh, to learn from you. So when we think about the pastoral care structures or wellbeing structures within a school. You know, how do we organise our schools to make sure that we have eyes on every child? You know, you think about you know, homerooms or tutor groups or whatever they're called within a school where smaller numbers of uh, students are with teachers, so the sort of teacher-student ratio is lower. Now, we talk about those wellbeing structures as being so critical for students, which they are, that somebody is looking at some little person's face every time they come into the school just to check and see how they're going, both the good and the bad. But those relationships are also really important for teachers. So when you think about you know, that homeroom structure, and I'm thinking about even vertical structures where teachers get in these homerooms get an opportunity to be with students of different age groups. What a beautiful barometer of what's going on in the school versus perhaps just being with here 10 students or you know, one set cohort. We talk, as I said, we talk about this as being really important for students, but actually it's really important for staff because those relationships between student and the staff, particularly if they're over time, just become really important for teacher wellbeing too. I mean, there might be some children who are not behaving well, but the role that the teacher can play in providing support, if a child's not behaving well, there's a reason. And a homeroom teacher can be in a position to build social capital with that child and a really bank some credit so that when that child is having difficulties, they can draw down. 
but that gift of helping the child obviously is reciprocated because that's that's helping teachers as well. That really resonates with me because my greatest joy in the classroom was being a homeroom teacher. I absolutely adored being a home group teacher and I spent a lot of time teaching year seven and a year seven home group teacher. And one of my favorite days on the school calendar was year seven orientation day when you got your new group. And I was just as excited as they were. We was like, this is us. We're going to be together. You're starting secondary school and we're going to be together for the whole year. Just behind me, I've got a letter from my first ever home group, seven <laughs> silver. And every now and then I just read it because it reminds me of how important this relationship piece is. And my work now is to support teachers to have that sense of self, to feel well enough to be in relationship with young people and not feeling like, oh, I've just got to check my emails. I've just got to get everything done and take that 10 minutes to be present and really enjoy and notice. And and interestingly, um, when we do have those relationships with students, our emails drop. You know, the, the, the sorts of things that are um, that are time consuming, like that student, we've all had those students in our years of teaching that really draw a huge amount of our time. When we invest in those students and we build that relationship, and as I said before, you know, bank credit with them, you know, when we need that credit, you know, later when they are experiencing a difficult time, you know, we're in a better position to deal with it. And it is less time consuming. So that investment, uh, social investment in building those social emotional skills in those young people and in ourselves is a, a big contributor to the students' wellbeing, but also to our own. Yes, that's so true. When we invest in our own wellbeing, we can reduce some issues too, because when we're not feeling so well, we can make errors and we can create a little bit more drama when it's not quite necessary. I, I think about some of the ways that I've responded, or I wouldn't say responded, probably more fairly reacted in classrooms when I'm not having the best day compared to learning the self-regulation skills to be able to talk to myself in the moment. I still remember one year seven class I had, it was rural Queensland. It was a really boisterous group of year seven boys <laughs> and they were just on fire one day. And I walked in after lunch and I said, boys, I've just got to take a moment. I'm feeling like I'm about to flip my lid. And they looked at me like I had lost my mind. Like, what is she doing? And I just said, I'm just learning this new work. I'm just going to take a moment because I'm about to lose it. And they just could not believe what I was doing. And slowly, slowly after the term, like, oh, this kind of makes sense. Oh, we, we've got something's happening here. I don't know quite what it is, but it's making sense and it's working. And what a great role model you would have been for those students because, you know, I think often students are sitting waiting to see how we respond as teachers to situations that are occurring. And when we model, you know, I just need to take a minute to you know, calm myself and uh, make sure that I'm ready to go forward. Uh, now going back to your comment earlier about how critical our modelling is, and that I think was a great example, Meg. And in the moment, it was deeply uncomfortable for me because I was so much more comfortable just pretending and doing that real powerful, I'm going to get you before you get me and letting that go and being present and being with what is. So when it comes to staff wellbeing, what can we do to improve it? As a school, if, uh, if I was a school leader, one of the most important first actions would be to put together a, a group of staff members and maybe those committees already exist, maybe a wellbeing committee uh, who has 
as part of their primary objective to focus on on staff well-being. So, um, you know, a barometer test to how how are staff functioning in the school, and that doesn't need a sophisticated survey to go out to all staff to to get detailed information. Some focus groups, inviting staff to comment, you know, something we've used quite a bit in some schools is what we call a graffiti wall, where you just create some butcher's paper in the classroom and you just leave some pens there and you ask some questions and you just ask the staff when they're going by to add some words, you know, what needs to be done, what's the biggest issue, where should we start, and getting some low-hanging fruit quickly. You know, I remember in one school uh, that we were working in for our research, the junior school teachers commented that they really felt out of the school sort of flow uh, because they had to walk so far to the main staff room. They often got there late. When they got there, all the food was gone. Uh, they missed the notices. Then they had to rush back and then half of them couldn't go anyway because they needed to supervise the students. And they really, they were just kind of a bit disappointed in uh, in how the school was supporting them. So the school wellbeing committee took that on board. They um, put a bowl of fruit in the junior school staff room so they could eat fruit or, you know, eat the food on the way up if they wanted to. They telecast the notices so that they could be part of it. They looked and volunteered and rotated secondary school staff to go down and do some duties so that all the junior school staff could come up together. Just little actions, you know, that didn't cost the school a lot, but it said to the junior school staff, we hear you, we care about you and we want you to be part of the community too. And a wellbeing committee and a bit of an assessment, you know, collecting some information from staff, using opportunities to find out what the staff would like to see, and then taking some very quick action to show quickly, you know, it might be buying a new coffee machine, whatever it is. It's, you know, it's not elaborate. It's not going to turn around somebody who's feeling really unwell, but it just says we care about staff within the school. We're listening uh, hard and we want to take actions that will improve your wellbeing or support staff recognition, the sorts of things that we know are really, really important for staff well-being. It's quite interesting as I go to different schools just how much focus is on the coffee machine these days. (laughs) (laughs) It's nothing more important than good coffee. (laughs) It it seems like it's getting bigger and bigger. When I go to a certain school, like, come and have a look, we've got a new coffee machine. This seems to be, and it's like, well, it's great because that's where people gather, that's where people can connect. And one school recently that I went to, the school leadership decided to change the staff room. They said the staff room was really outdated. It wasn't a real welcoming environment. And so they did a full renovation and it's the most beautiful space. And when you walk into there, it doesn't feel like you're at school anymore. I think what a clever move because now staff are coming in for recess, they're coming in for lunch and in ways that they didn't do before because the space is much more inviting. Yes. Oh, look, it's a, a wonderful idea. We've seen some really terrific things that uh, that schools have done. In one of the schools we're in recently, they had what they called a department picnic basket, uh, and they just randomly provided at the start of a week a picnic basket per department. So the maths department might have got it first with all sorts of goodies that the staff could go out and have a picnic somewhere if they wanted to or just dig into the basket over the over the week as just a, a point of appreciation. And what the principal did was always put a note into the picnic basket that was very specific to that team and spoke to the things that that team were doing really well within the school environment and how much they were appreciated. So it was localised recognition and personalised and, uh, and something special that really kind of brightened the group. And, you know, when the picnic basket arrived, it, it kind of brought great joy. So it was quite symbolic within the school. Activities like that, uh, obviously lots of people do things like 
on-site wellbeing events where they might bring in someone to do some yoga or whatever that might be. But something that uh, some schools talked about was caring for new parents who are staff members. So a staff member who might have had a child kind of needs that that regular check-in because there's a lot going on now with, you know, going on, that peer-to-peer support programs, you know, being really critical and, be, and schools being really mindful of, uh, of the sorts of actions that they can take to, to show their appreciation and support for staff. I love all of those examples because it's about purposeful action, noticing, taking action, circling back, how you're going, and also acknowledging this human element that all teachers carry, because as teachers, we know how to work hard. We like to think of ourselves as machines, but we're not. And so being able to acknowledge that human element and what works for you, what doesn't. And I love that example from the primary school to the secondary school that they just couldn't get there. It's a bit too late. And that is such a simple thing to work on. And as you said, it doesn't need an external consultant. You don't need a lot of money. It's listening to the people in your system and working out what's important to them, what really will make a difference to them. And I love your word there, listening and uh, and providing opportunities to listen. And that's why, you know, things like the graffiti board, we even in one school encourage teachers to take photographs of the places in the school that they really like being. You know, it's part of a, a fun event in the staff room, you show your photograph and what is it about that place in the school that you like and why? And very often it was relationship-based, you know, that's where the great group of year eight girls are at lunchtime and I love a conversation with them. Others um, took photographs of places where uh, no, that, that was, they felt uncomfortable and they were able to talk about you know, maybe the supervision that was needed there or what was going on with students. You know, they were worried about the vaping going on in the, st- the toilets or whatever it might be. And, uh, and being able to use those images as kind of talking point and then problem solving them together. Well, you know, if, if that's a red zone for staff, why? And what could we do differently um, to support staff? So really... These listening opportunities, um, as you're suggesting, are critical to identify and prioritise what needs to be done. And most of them don't take much money or time. It's often just a reorganisation or just being a bit more thoughtful about how how the school's organised around those issues. And I love that idea of having a committee that focuses on it because so many schools have a head of wellbeing or director of wellbeing and they have the portfolio of student, staff, everything. Sometimes I think they almost become like the spare room, like, oh, yeah, the wellbeing, they'll do that and they'll do that and they'll do that. And so having a committee where they can come together and spend the time really thinking about what do our staff need, what are they asking for, and how can we make that happen in simple and effective ways? Meg, I think that's so true. Often the, the champion, the wellbeing champion in the school, and they're often identified. In fact, just this week I've been working with a whole group of amazing people who were wellbeing leaders in their school. The burnout levels are high, and I think you just made the comment then, you know, anything that isn't curriculum becomes, you know, wellbeing or student services, and it can be quite overwhelming. So a really purposeful group who are focused on staff wellbeing and you know, it doesn't need to be separate from other wellbeing activities related to students and families and so on. It clearly needs to be linked, but it, it needs its own agenda and focus because it will get lost in you know, the mammoth amount of activities that are going on to support student wellbeing. It also really helps to prioritise it. 
And you know, in the same way with student wellbeing, there are so many wellbeing issues that we could be addressing, but the time needs to be taken with a group who are thinking through in careful detail, what are the biggest priorities? Where are we going to see the most change and are the greatest needs for our school community? We can't address them all, but we work out what needs to happen first and then obviously sequence uh, other responses. And so is true for teacher wellbeing and the impact of that on, on student wellbeing will be evident and obviously that needs to be related. But critically, it must focus on all that care and work that's needed to not only help teachers when they're experiencing difficulties, you know, EAP, employee assistance programs need to be quality and delivering really well, but also how do we build? You know, often people focus on preventing mental illness or preventing difficulties versus what do we need to promote and how can we optimise? So thinking about wellbeing on a continuum. So wherever we are, there are little steps we can take to just be a, you know, a tiny bit better. I'm going to walk for five minutes longer than I normally do. I'm going to take the stairs every time I've got a choice. You know, those small actions that are promoting wellbeing as well as you know, preventing difficulties are what would be priority issues, I would hope, in that wellbeing, staff wellbeing committee. And I hope every listener is getting so, so excited. They're going to run back to their school and say, do we have a committee? If we don't, how are we going to make one? This is so important. And just getting excited about this topic because I believe that the schools that will thrive, particularly in the next three to five years, are the ones who invest now and focus now on staff wellbeing. Well, interestingly that you say that, Meg, because we're, we were collecting data during um, you know, the, the really intense periods of COVID and the schools who were functioning best were the schools who were investing in, in well-being and, uh, and that had the strongest school culture. And, uh, and that was so evident because, as you can imagine, children's well-being and staff well-being were significantly shifting during, uh, during that period. And there was such a distinct difference in those schools that had good culture and good relationships really embedded into the fabric of the school in the beautiful dance that you used <laughs> as part of that sort of school school family to bring together all those metaphors that we've talked about so far. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic, Donna. To wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dance. Um, I am inspired by. Well, I think I'm inspired by uh, how generous and kind most Australians are. I just think that it's just extraordinary that we live in such an amazing environment where people are so kind. Though those those gentle moves that they do every day, and I uh, had a recent experience with my daughter who whose car hit a kangaroo aside of the road the night before Father's Day. She was driving south, and a beautiful family stopped helped her. It was eight o'clock at night. I'm sure they just wanted to go where they were going, put her in the car, looked after her, nurtured. I mean, just examples of beautiful people and aren't we lucky? So, so lucky. When life feels hard? When life feels hard, there's always someone to talk to and ideal to, ideally to walk with them at the same time. I just find I get great benefit of shoulder-to-shoulder uh, -shoulder talking. You know, even in those really tough moments, it's hard to look somebody directly in the eyes and talk. But when you're shoulder to shoulder, you know, someone's going on a journey with you and, uh, and those conversations can be easy. So when life's hard, that's, that's where I would go. Yes. <laughs> An underrated skill is? 
Oh, I think, well, I think the most underrated skill is making friends. You know, we assume that we can naturally do that. But like shooting a basketball or hitting a forehand in tennis, it needs lots of practice and it needs gameplay to learn it well. Making friends and keeping friends, you know, that, um, you know, skills that perhaps are, are being tested really well in the online environment as well as offline. And I'm looking forward to. Gosh, I'm looking forward to. Well, I think I'm looking forward to a time when teachers receive the level of kudos and recognition and support that they deserve for the critical role that they do in our community. Like in other countries, you know, teachers have a much higher status and I, I just feel we are so underserving these essential uh, contributors uh, to our community. So I'm, I'm so grateful, Meg, that you've chosen this topic to talk about this morning because it has to be on the government agenda. We have to do something to support these extraordinary people who've stayed in a profession that will make all the difference for our country and our, our children. Donna, thank you so much for the work you are doing in this space. I love watching and reading your work. It's always rings so true. There's this element of, yes, this makes sense. There's this real practicality to it. And it's not moving away from the challenges. It's being with the challenges and the possibilities moving forward. So thank you for your work and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing today. Such a privilege. Thanks, Meg. I hope this conversation has inspired you to think about the small and big actions you can take to bring more attention to staff wellbeing in your school. And if you don't have a staff wellbeing committee at your school, what can you do to make it happen? If you love this episode, please share it with anyone you think would benefit from hearing Donna share how staff wellbeing is critical for student outcomes. To learn how I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak at your next professional development day or learn more about Energy by Design, my game-changing wellbeing program for educators. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 64. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week.